You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right, good morning and welcome to Radiant Church where we have the cutest kids on the planet. Amen, church, right? Listen, um, my name is Marco. If you're new with us, thank you for joining us. I am the lead pastor of Radiant Church, and thank you so much for making Radiant a part of your weekend. If you're watching online, we love you. Make sure you share this live stream on your newsfeed. It sure does help us to get the word out. Well, before we get into the message this morning, I have just a couple highlights I want to mention. Number one, we have our Seek series is coming up every January. We do this. It is beginning January 8th is when we begin this series. But to accompany this series, we have three nights of worship on three consecutive Wednesday nights, January 11th, January 18th, January 25th. They're about an hour long where we pray, we worship together. They are incredible nights where we just dive deeper into the presence of God. We pray through certain passages of Scripture because prayer is uh, the vocation of the church. That's what we should be doing. So we would love for you to join us. I'm giving you these dates ahead of time so you can make plans on being with us on those three nights of worship. And then, as you know, every Seek, we make available a Seek devotional. This is a 21-day guide, a 21-day journey through Scripture, through prayer, and we will, again, make that available for you. Uh, We'll have print copies for sale in the merch room. We'll also have them online completely free. But to accompany that this year, we will have also, we will join together with this book right here called Roar, like a Lion by Levi Lusco, and we will have that here uh, January 1st for sale as well. And parents, listen, this is a great gift that you can ask other relatives. If they are asking you, hey, what can we give your family? Ask them for this. It's about 12 bucks, and currently my kids and I are going through this, and this is great. If you have little ones, you can use this in conjunction, again, with the Seek devotional that will be made available on January 8th and print and as a digital guide. So make sure you check this out as well, parents. It's going to be an incredible season uh, again as we celebrate, as we enter into the Seek series this January. Well, listen, today we are back in our message series. It's just entitled Christmas, the Gift of Hope, and we have been discovering, exploring how exactly Jesus is our long-awaited hope. And how is he our long-awaited hope anyways? Well, here's the idea. We've been diving into particular passages of the gospel and of other sections of scripture, and we've been looking at this idea. How is Jesus hope? And week number one, we talked about Jesus is hope for sinners. Sinners, and guess what? That's all of us. And so we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. Jesus is hope for sinners like you and me. Week number two was last week. We talked about Jesus is hope for the lost or hope for the prodigal, prodigal sons and daughters. And last week, we talked about this idea of what does it mean to be lost? And so many people are lost today. They're trying to find hope in other things besides 
Christ. And if you were here last week, man, God was just moving in this service, and so many people came up for prayer. So many people came and just took a knee in tears and just prayer to God as they did business with God. It was so, so encouraging to see so many people, uh, the gospel just affecting so many people. Now, this morning, here's what I want to do. I actually, I want to pick up right where we left off in Luke chapter 15. If you remember from last week, we stopped in verse 24, and we did that on purpose. Because that's not the end of the parable. There's actually more verses to that parable, but we stopped there on purpose. Now, if today is your first Sunday, I'm going to just give you a quick recap. Maybe you don't really read your Bible and you don't know much of these stories. That's understandable. So let me just give you a quick summary of the parable of the lost son, or this is sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. Here's what happens. Jesus tells a story about a father who has two sons, a younger son and an older son. The younger son comes to his father and says, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. In other words, I want the property. It's the equivalent of wishing that his dad was dead. Because normally, listen, sons or daughters, sons wouldn't get the inheritance until their father passed away. So the father, I'm sure, is heartbroken, gives his share of the property, the inheritance to his younger son. What does the son do? I mean, he squanders it. He leaves town. He goes on this far journey, right? And he squanders all of the money in wild, in reckless living, like just hits the nightclubs, the streets. He's out in Vegas in the slot machines, blowing all of his money, just living the high life. But eventually, here's what happens. The money runs out because guess what? The money always runs out, right? The money always runs out. And he just realizes, man, what am I doing with my life? Like, this is not, this is not life. This is not what I thought it would be. And he thinks to himself, he has this kind of aha moment. You know what I'm saying? And he's thinking like, man, my father has everything, and here I am in the slop. I'm literally playing with pigs. Like, there's got to be something better than this. And so he begins to tell himself, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to my father's house. So he begins to rehearse these lines, what he will say to his father. So he's thinking in his head, okay, I'm going to just tell my father I've, I've sinned against him. I've sinned against heaven. And so what, he rehearses these lines, and then he heads back home, unsure if his father would accept him. Now, to his surprise, as he's approaching home, the father sees him from a distance. And what does his father do? His father lifts up his garments, which is, by the way, very undignified for this wealthy landowner in the first century, first century sort of Greco-Roman context. And he runs towards his son. And the father, listen, is so overjoyed. What does he do? He gives his son a robe. He gives his son a new sandals on his feet. He, get, he gives his son a ring on his finger. He tells his servants, listen, kill the fattened calf because we are going to have a BBQ, okay? We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to have a party. This is going to be awesome because why? Because my son was dead. Now he's alive. 
My son was lost, but he's been found. But what we didn't cover last week was the other son, the older one. What about him? How does he respond? Because this story is actually, listen, I understand that most of us give emphasis to the younger son, the one who's wild, the one who is reckless with his money, but we never actually talk about the older son. And I think that we should spend some time because the story is actually about both sons, not just the younger one. So here's what I want to do. I want to read through the rest of these verses. I want you to follow along because for some of you, for a lot of you, this is going to be new. You've never heard anything about the older son, but this is just, I promise you, just as important as the verses that we talked about last week. So if you have a Bible, join me. If not, the verses will be behind me. We're going to pick things up in verse Number 25, here's what Luke records. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he's like, from a distance, he hears like, he's like, what is going on? Are they dancing? Does dad have the bow system up loud? What? Like the pioneer speakers are cranked up, right? I'm dating myself, pioneer speakers. And he's like, man, are they having a party? Like, what is going on? Verse number 26. So he called one of the servants and asked, asked him, hey, what's going on? He replies, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became, here it is, church, angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me the PS3. You never bought me the virtual reality that I asked for last Christmas. And I've been slaving away. You never gave me even a younger goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property, with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because why? Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is so good, you guys. Today we're going to talk about Jesus is hope for the religious and the self-righteous. And churches tend to be filled with those types of people. And even if you don't go to church, you, it's so easy for us to slip into that. Jesus is hope, listen, not just for the lost, not just for those who go and live crazy lives and you know, do drugs and alcohol and sleep around and those types of things. Jesus is also hope for the religious and the self-righteous, those ones who won't come back into the party, those ones who won't celebrate the younger son coming home, those ones who are always pointing fingers. But Jesus came for you too. I want to explore that idea this morning. It's going to be good. I'm so excited to, to preach this this morning. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you so much for just the work that you're doing in our lives, God. We pray that you might call many 
many religious sons home, self-righteous daughters home today, God. Through the power of your spirit, we do pray, God, that you might um, soften hardened hearts. God, um, that you might open blind eyes and unlock deaf ears. Lord, if any one of us this morning feel convicted, feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit, um, just drawing us near to the Father, Lord, I pray that we would not harden our hearts. Lord, I, I truly pray that we would not harden our hearts. I, I pray that we would not say, well, this message is for them, not for me, Lord, because my, my guess is that it's going to be several of us today who will feel the convicting of the Holy Spirit. Father, um, would you teach our church that we should embrace this? Because this is what causes us to change. Conviction and then repentance, turning away from those things, God. That is what you long for. So, Lord, would you do the work that I cannot do? Come and rescue us this Christmas, God. Come and save the rebellious, but also would you come and save the religious as well? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning to just set up the story. Have you ever received an unlikely response to a question or perhaps to something that you've done? Let me ask that one more time. Have you ever been given an unlikely response to, to a question or perhaps to something that you've done? It's Christmas time. Let me give you a few examples. It's Christmas time right now, and so what are you doing? You're, you're putting all your energy into buying that perfect gift for her or for him, right? Maybe you've done this before. You did all the research on Amazon, right? You hit all the stores. You did everything you could do to find the perfect gift for her or for him, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband or wife, and you finally give that gift, and you are so excited. You're like, they're going to love it. I can't wait. And they open the gift, and all they do is stare at you. And then they say, why would you give this to me? That's an unlikely response, right? You thought they were going to be overjoyed. And instead, they're just questioning why you would do such a thing. True story, when my wife and I, we were going on our maybe second or third year of marriage, um, before any of the kids came, I bought my wife an iPad. This was like iPad 3, like the third iPad ever invented, right? I mean, they were very new, and I was so excited because I was like, these things are sweet, like a flat screen, and like you can watch movies on them. And I was like, I, I bought her the iPad. I wrapped it up, and then I delivered that, that, that gift on that Christmas morning. She opened it up, and I was like, oh, she's going to love it. She's going to love it. And she opened it, and she's like, oh, an iPad. She just looked at me for a few moments, and I'm like, what, okay, what, wait, wait a second. What's going on here? And she says to me, I didn't want the iPad. You wanted an iPad. And I said, correct, you're right. You are right about that. But, babe, it's an iPad. You got to check this out, right? I had good motives, but literally she called me out on it, right? And I had an unlikely response. What about this one? What about this? You mustered up. Just think back to your marriages 10 years, 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 years ago for some of you maybe. Listen, and those words, those three little words, you mustered up the courage to tell that someone's 
special. What is those words, church? I love you, right? I love you, and you finally said it. And what did they do? They looked at you, and they said, thank you. <laughs> or, okay. And you're like, right? It's your turn to say it back to me. But no such thing happened in that moment. Well, what about this? You've been getting to know him or her for the last few months, and you're like, okay, I'm going to ask her out. It's a shoe-in. I know she will say yes. I mean, it's, it's just, it's going to be great Unos and then Kokomos, and then it's going to, it's going to go well. It's going to be great nights. I know she'll say yes. And you finally say, hey, what, what do you think? We should hang out. You want to go out? I want to buy you dinner. And she says to you, you know what? I'm just not ready for a relationship. You're like, oh, dagger to the heart. Just, push. no. And you're like, yeah, of course. Of course. Well, yeah, of course, right? Meanwhile, you walk away, you hang your head low, and you cry in the corner, right? Because this is an unlikely response. What do we see happen in Luke chapter 15, you guys? It's an unlikely response. The younger brother comes home, and the older brother, you think would celebrate, you think would be just as happy um, as dad that the younger brother has come home safe and sound. But what's going on with the older brother? He's not happy. He's angry. He's angry. He is upset. And, and this is so fascinating because Jesus is trying to show us something. Jesus is trying to show us that there are two ways that you can be lost. Some people are lost by living wild lives. I mean, like the drug use and the wild living and, you know, just going to the clubs and reckless spending and just living a crazy and wild life, right? But others don't do that. You can be lost like the younger brother, but you can also be lost like the older brother. And what do they do? Well, they follow all the rules, point fingers at everybody, tell others how they're not as good as they think they are, and they are what? Self-righteous, and they have a religious spirit. And Jesus is trying to show us that both brothers are lost. Both are actually far from the Father. Now, here's the thing. Today, I want to show you how Jesus is hope for the religious, hope for those with a self-righteous spirit. And as I speak, listen, you might discover that you're here this morning and you're a little more like the older brother than you thought. You thought you were so good. You thought you had all the moral performance. And what's going to happen is you might discover that you're more like the older brother than you thought. Because Jesus wants us to wants us to see that both of these brothers are lost. I want to show you this morning four ways you can tell if you're an older brother. I want you to listen closely because this is going to affect more of you than you think. Four reasons, four ways you, you can tell if you're a religious, you have a religious spirit or you're an older brother. Number one is this, religious people use their obedience or moral behavior to, here it is, make God do what they want him to do. Religious people use their obedience or their moral behavior to make God do what they want him to do. Look at verse 29 with me. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He's pointing 
back to himself. Look at my performance. Look at how good I've done. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What are religious people trying to do? Religious people are trying to earn or merit God's favor for themselves or on their lives. Here's what religious people might sound like. They might, they might sound a little like this. Well, you know, I live a pretty good moral life. I try not to swear. I treat these people good. I'm a pretty good guy. You know what I mean? This week, I read all my devotions. This week, I spent time in prayer, 20 minutes every single day for seven days in a row. God, I've done my part. Now you do your part. That's a person with a religious spirit, trying to manipulate, control God to get him to do what they want him to do. And they say things like this, okay, God, I've done my part, you do your part. In other words, listen, but what happens is, what happens if things don't go well for you this week, that week, right? You, you do those things, but what happens? Maybe your son gets sick or your, your child gets sick, maybe... Um, you have a terrible day at work. Maybe you have a fight with your spouse, right? So then what do you do? Religious people will do this. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did, I, did I not read my Bible enough? Did I not pray enough? Did, did, I, not, did I not do this enough? Was I not good in this area? What, did I, I only swore three times this week. What are you talking about, God? And so religious people are always going back to their behavior or their, what I would say, their performance but here's what happens next. Here's what happens next. It doesn't stop there. Someone with a religious spirit then becomes infuriated with God. How dare you allow that to happen to me? How dare? I, I didn't deserve that. I've been good. Don't you notice how hard I've worked to be a good person, a good mother, or a good father? I didn't. How dare you? I've been working hard to be good for you. Religious person is trying to earn or merit favor from God. And if they suspect it's something on their own part, what do they do? They begin to look at themselves. They actually begin to hate themselves. Because why? Because someone with a religious spirit, they just expect that their goodness and morality will merit a good life for them. Now, if that's you, listen, here's what happens as well. You'll always compare yourself to other people. Well, why them and not me, God? Well, how come they get a new car again? Well, what about them? Well, they get another vacation. We don't get a vacation. Well, why not him? Why, well, why not? Why them and why me? And what are they doing? They're basically saying what? They're, there's an air of superiority. An air of superiority. And what they're doing is they're comparing themselves not uh, to say essentially that they are better than those other God, look at my moral, my moral track record. It's so good. I've done such a good job. I'm helping people. I'm doing this. I'm giving to that charity. I'm giving to that charity. How come they have more? There's no way they're better than me. I know what he does. Here's the point. Religious people are always evaluating their relationship with God based on their own performance. It's based on their own performance. Can you see this strong sense of superiority that wells up in religious people? Always pointing the finger, well, they should do that. Well, that don't, they should do that. They should do that. They should do that. It's like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, what about you? <laughs> Stop pointing the finger, Mr. Religious Person. Right? <laughs> Did you know that it's impossible to forgive someone if you think that you're morally superior to them? Come on, someone. I'm preaching now. 
It's impossible to forgive someone if you think you're better than them. And so religious people will often harbor bitterness, harbor unforgiveness. Why? Because they think they're just so much better than everybody else. They have a better moral track record. Now, is there a blessing to our obedience? 100%. I believe that. Of course, the Bible talks about these things. Of course there is. But listen, God is not some type of genie in a bottle. And as our friend Christina Aguilera has said, you can't just rub him the right way. We don't put God in our debt. I knew that would catch some of your attention. We don't put God in our debt. We don't somehow make God do our will. But the idea is that religious people obey God not because they love God, but because they want God to do something for them. They don't actually love the Father. They just want him to do what they want him to do for them, what they want. So what's at the root of it? Well, selfishness. Greed, maybe. If this is the case for you, listen, the Scripture says that you're just as lost as the younger brother. You're just as lost. What about number two? Number two, religious people use their morality to avoid a relationship with Jesus by putting themselves in the place of Savior, Lord, and Judge. This is a religious person, someone who's self-righteous. Religious people have often, listen, they have this exterior obedience, and they're living a pretty good life, right? They say all the right things. They do all the right things. I mean, of course, they're not perfect because who's perfect after all, right? And nobody ever claimed that I was perfect. But hey, you know what? I'm doing pretty good on my own over here. And here's the thing. We often think that sin is simply um, failure to obey a moral command of God. And that's true. That's the case. But sin is not just that. Sin is also believing and acting like you are the Savior. Sin is also believing and acting as if you can save yourself. We become Savior. We become Lord. And guess what? We become the judge. We put God on trial. The creation has the audacity to put the creator on trial. That's craziness, right? Craziness. If we're doing a pretty good job, guess what happens? We no longer need Jesus because after all, listen, I'm doing pretty good on my own. Pretty good moral, I'm a pretty good moral person. You're full of pride. You're self-righteous. You have a religious spirit. And you're lost. This is what the scripture would say. Religious people will run away from a relationship with God. <laughs> and this is difficult to, 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 to observe to see, because why? Because again, they have all of the moral obedience that you think a good person should have, right? But their hearts are far from him. That's what the scripture would want us to see. Their hearts are far from him. Are you avoiding a relationship with Jesus today? You might be. You might have an excuse. You might have a thousand excuses. I don't know your story. But listen, the easiest way to avoid a relationship with Jesus is to pretend like you're the savior. It's to pretend like you can save yourself. It's to pretend like you can save other people. So religious people, let's be reminded, they use their morality to avoid a relationship with Jesus. They become Lord, judge, and savior. Number three, religious people divide the world into good guys and bad guys. 
Religious people, they divide the world into good guys and bad guys, and here's what they say. The good guys are in, the bad guys are out. Now, you, of course, would be a good guy, so you're going to be in, right? You would see yourself as a good guy, so you're automatically in. A a religious person would say, you know what? Bad guys are those, um, they're they're bigoted, they're narrow-minded, they're rebellious. Those are the bad guys. Now, the good guys, they're, you know, open-minded, they're super tolerant of everyone, they're so nice. That's how you sort of categorize things, those who are in, those who are out. But can I just tell you that the Scripture says something radically different. The Scripture tells us, Jesus himself says this. He says that actually, you know what? The humble are in and the prideful are out. Jesus says himself, I think it's Luke chapter 18, he says this, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The humble are in, the prideful are out. This is Jesus' point. The people who confess that they aren't particularly good or open-minded, listen, these are the people who are drawing closer to God. These are the people that are drawing closer to God. Those who are confessing that they're not really that great of a person, that they're actually pretty close-minded. Now, you might think they're far from God, but they're actually drawing near to God because they're actually confessing those things. They see a need for a Savior. I love what Tim Keller says. He says this, the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. And some of us don't know that we need it. And that's a shame. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. And this leads me to my final point, number four. Religious people are far from God, but they don't even know it. Religious people are far from God, but they don't even know it. And the reason they don't know it is because pride has clouded their their thinking. Pride has clouded their need for Jesus. So they're far from God, but they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. They're sort of oblivious to it. Why? Because they're betting on their moral behavior. I'm a pretty good person. I do good here. I treat people with dignity. I don't need this. I don't need Jesus. I I got this. I don't need a church, pastor. They should do that. I'm I'm in. They're out. But listen, the the oldest brother in 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 the scripture, he's totally lost. He doesn't even realize it. He's angry. He's fighting with his father. He's pleading, hey, I've done all these things. Why, Why didn't you do your part? Where's the goat for me? When a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world? The great thinker and Christian apologist by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote a brief response in a letter, and this is what he wrote. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Usually it's like, it's those people over there. It's those guys over there. It's those people over there. They do that, that, right? And G.K. Chesterton says, no, I'm what's wrong with the world. 
I'm what's wrong with the world. And this is the attitude of someone who has truly grasped the message of Jesus. I'm what's wrong. Do you remember the story in Luke, near the end of Luke's gospel? There are two thieves, one on each side of Jesus. Now, the first thief, he recognizes his need. He confesses that he's supposed to be there because he's broken the law. He's broken God's law, but he's also broken the law of the land. So he's confessing that he's supposed to be there. And he says, Jesus, will today, will, you know, will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus, you know, Jesus replies to him, today, you, know, you will be with me, what? In paradise. And so here's this man who's broken the law, broken the moral law, the moral code of God, but he says, I, I, I'm supposed to be here on this cross. Jesus, you're not. You haven't done anything wrong, but I am. And I recognize that you're the son of God, and I certainly need salvation. But what does the other thief on the cross do? The other thief is disgruntled. He's angry. He's, he's sort of yelling out curses. And he's saying, like, if you're the son of God, why don't you just get yourself off the cross? Why don't you save someone for crying out loud? Why don't you do what you said you were going to do after all? Who's the one who finds salvation that day? It's the humble one. It's the one that receives grace. It's the one who recognizes he needs it. And he's broken the law. He's broken the moral law of God. But the one, listen, who's full of pride, who's full of anger, who's re resentful, who cries out blasphemies, who curses God essentially, listen, he doesn't receive the grace in that instant, in that moment. What's the common thread here? Well, the common thread is this. It, of all these points that I've made, it's a lack of relationship with the Father. It's a lack of true relationship with the Father. And what is it more like? It's more like religion. It's more like transactions. You treat God like it's a transactional thing, a tip for tap. I do this, you do that. I do this, you do that. Nothing ever bad should happen to me, not recognizing that we live in an incredibly broken, fallen, and sick world. There's a lack of real relationship with the Father. Let me give you a few points. They won't be on the screen, but I think they're really important when it helps us to distinguish the difference between religion and the gospel, because there's a difference between man-made religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religion says that we obey God to get God to do what we want him to do. But the gospel says that we do things because God loves us and our obedience is our natural response to him. Listen, our obedience is our natural response to him. The gospel says that we don't obey God to get, to get something from God. We obey because he first loved us. And it's our natural response. We're not trying to do good, to be a good person, to earn something, to, to earn the applause of others. Good job. You did. You're, you're so wonderful. You're such a great moral, upstanding character in our community. No, 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 no. Listen, someone who knows the gospel recognizes that they're broken, they're sinful, they're deprived, right? And they bow the knee to Jesus and they say, listen, Jesus... The only reason I can obey you is because you loved me first. And you proved it by sending your son on the cross to die in my place. Religion tries to earn favor from God and bypass the need for a savior. 
But the gospel shows us our need for a savior, which necessitates humility. It necessitates humility. Religion is trying to get something to earn something. You know what religious people do? Religious people aren't obeying God to get God. They're obeying God to get God to do something for them, right? So listen, the gospel shows us that we are to be humble and therefore approach the cross with great humility. Finally, the gospel shows us our need for a savior, or sorry, religion. Religion is merely exterior obedience for the sake of appearance. Religion is merely exterior obedience for the sake of appearance. But the gospel, listen, actually transforms our hearts from the inside out. The gospel is what changes you. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe first the Jew and then the Gentile. What is the gospel? It's the power of God to change your heart, to not make you a religious person, to not try to make you a good person, but to actually change you from the inside out. And so when you obey, when you love God, it's not because you're trying to sort of save face. It's not because you're trying to show yourself as superior to other people. It's not because you're trying to say, well, I'm in and they're out. It's because why? Because you recognize that Jesus has saved you from your sins. And listen, The gospel has transformed your life. The spirit of God now dwells within you and has changed you forever. That's gospel transformation. That is gospel transformation. So what do we need to get to God? How do we approach God? How do we find God? Because maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? I'm a little bit like the older brother. (laughs) I'm a little bit more like the older brother. The past several weeks, my responses to you, God, (laughs) I've treated you a bit more like a genie in a bottle than I thought I have. I've treated you like a commodity. I have not treated you like Lord. I have begged you. I have accused you. I have put you on trial. I'm a little bit more like the older brother. I confess that. Maybe you're here this morning. There's two things that you need this morning if you are seeking God this morning. And my prayer is that you are all seeking God this morning. Morning. Listen, here's what we need to do. We first must need, we first must learn to repent of the sin of all other sins. And that is the sin of trying to become our own savior. We, not only must we repent, listen, of the things that we've done wrong and the failure to obey God in every sort of situation, we must also repent for the attempt to try to save ourselves or save other people. We're trying to save him, save her. You're not the savior. You were never meant to be their savior. And some of you are so overwhelmed. You're so overburdened. You're so full of anxiety. You're so just crushed with pressures of life because you're trying to carry a burden that was never yours. You're not saving anyone. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. We must actually repent of why we've ever done something right in the first place. What are the motives behind our actions, right? The second thing that we need to do to see Jesus is we need to see that someone always has to pay for forgiveness, you guys. Someone always has to pay for forgiveness. 
I want to give you some examples from Scripture or from, from, from Jesus himself. Jesus has paid our debt on the cross in our place. Someone has to pay for forgiveness. Do you remember the robe that the father gave to the younger son? It was on the cross that Jesus is stripped of his robe. He was naked. He was stripped of his dignity. Why? So that we could receive the robe, that we could receive dignity that we did not deserve. You know, it was on the cross of Christ where Jesus was treated like an outcast so that we could be welcomed into the family freely by his grace, by his grace. Finally, it was on the cross where Jesus was made to drink of the eternal cup of suffering. Why? So that we, you and I, could drink of the cup of the Father's joy. Jesus has paid your penalty. There's a price for forgiveness. Someone always has to pay, and Jesus has paid for you today. And so as we close today, listen, perhaps maybe you're here this morning, and, and you need to repent because you're more like the older brother than you thought. <laughs> you're more like the older brother than you thought. Jesus teaches us that both the younger brother and the older brother are lost. And they both need a savior outside of themselves. Both the younger brothers, those who live wild and reckless lives, and the older brothers, those who are religious, those who are trying to be good people outside of Jesus, they both need saving. They both are lost. The interesting thing about this story as we close is this, is that in the story, one brother has lived in open rebellion to God, right, the wild living, but the other brother has lived in secret rebellion to God. You just couldn't tell because he was morally good. He was performing the right way, saying the right things, doing the right things until the younger son comes home and he's just ticked. He loses it like, this is not fair. How dare you, Father, do this to me? I was reading my devotional every day, reading my Bible, praying every day. How could you do this to me? How could you allow this to happen to me? Church, I want to remind you, this is this is the good news of the gospel. I want to remind you today, listen, that Jesus has come to save both the rebellious and the religious. Aren't you glad that Jesus saves them both? Both the rebellious and the religious. And this morning, this series, my heart, my prayer is that Jesus would save many religious people, many church people. My prayer is that Jesus would save many good folk. My prayer is that Jesus would save many nice people. My prayer is that he would save many moral, upstanding characters in our community, those types of people. My prayer is that he would save many of those types of people. My prayer is also that he would save many who are rebellious, many who are running from him, many who have lived a wicked life. Jesus would save them both. And I want to invite you to that this morning. I want to invite you to receive that gift. I want to pray with you now. 
I'm not going to call you up. I don't feel compelled in my spirit to do that like I did last week. Last week was powerful. But I want you to just sit with this. I think, I think you're called to sit with this this morning, to take this with you, to chew on these verses, to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to your heart in a very, very real and personal way. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this message. We thank you, God, that you've come to save both the religious people and the rebellious people. God, you've come to save both those who think there are insiders and those who think there are outsiders. Your word tells us, God, that the humble will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Lord, show us today. We don't want to be humbled by you because that would be a terror. That would be horrific. We don't want to be humbled by you. God, we tremble in our boots thinking about that. For you are Lord. You are master. You are creator, sovereign over over the universe. Father, we humble ourselves today. We humble ourselves and we come to you with great humility saying, you know, God, we've, we've tried to survive on our own good behavior for so long. Enough's enough. We need Jesus today. We've tried to accuse other people that they're not doing enough while at the same time, we will never point the finger at ourselves. Enough's enough. And Father, we confess that perhaps today we're just a little bit more like that older brother. And we need grace, God. We need your grace upon grace. Forgive us, God, for putting you on trial. Forgive us for thinking that we could treat you that way as if you're just some flippant person out in our neighborhood, God. Forgive us, Father. And we bow our knee to you. We don't love you. We don't try to obey you because we want you to you to do what we want or we're trying to twist your arm, God. We simply come in humility, asking for your will to be done in our lives, in the areas of our lives where we have tried to think we're better than that, Lord. Show us, God. Every area in our lives we're confessing right now under the Lordship of Jesus. Under the Lordship of Jesus, every area right now, our Our hearts are so prideful often, God, we don't even see it. And yet, would you break our hearts today? Father, by your Holy Spirit, break hearts. Break up fallow ground this morning. Break up hardened hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, I plead with you. Break up fallow ground with tears. Tears that would begin to fall. Tears that would begin to soak in to years of hardness, years of animosity, years of self-righteousness. Father, we pray, break up, follow ground. For no one can come to you, God, unless you draw them. And Lord, when you draw so often, we just stiffen our hearts. Lord, if we feel your drawing today, do not allow us to harden our hearts as those who didn't in the rebellion, those who were caught in the wilderness, God, in the Exodus event like Paul talks about. God, don't let us harden our own hearts. Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, break hardened religious older brothers this morning, their hearts this morning. We need you. We confess we need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Just a few more moments. Just a few more moments in his presence few more moments.
There's some hardened hearts this morning. I know there are. You never smile. And yet, you say, I tithe. I do good things. And yet, you're hardened. You're bitter. The Holy Spirit says, let me soften your heart this morning. Even you can be saved. Jesus has come to save both the rebellious and the religious. Father, we receive your grace today. Come and transform hearts. Forgive us of our wicked sin, our sin of pride. Come and live on the inside of us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe that you died on the cross, but that three days later you rose from the grave and that you sit at the right hand of the Father and one day you will return to judge the living and the dead. We receive salvation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Come on, let's clap our hands this morning.